TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Joanna Macy, A Wiser, Braver World On the summer solstice of 2020, Joanna Macy, from her home in Berkeley, spoke at the Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The Buddhist monastery had called for awakened action and invited women leaders to speak to race, poverty, climate, and the COVID pandemic. Joanna Macy is an eco-philosopher and a scholar of Buddhism and deep ecology. Now in her very early 90s, she has for decades helped transform despair and apathy into constructive change. As teacher, writer of eight books, and anti-nuclear activist, she has created frameworks for personal and social change. Joanna Macy is probably best known as the founder and root teacher of the work that reconnects. Thanks to Roshi Joan Halifax and the Upaya Zen Center, and to Joanna Macy, for their permission to broadcast this inspiring talk. Delighted to be here. Uh, what a marvelous idea came to you, Roshi Joan. And I am so grateful to be included in the voices that you are bringing to so many. So I'd like to say that for the last 40 years, I've been growing a form of experiential group work. It's called the work that reconnects. Actually, one way to describing it is that it helps people tell the truth about what they experience is happening to their world. And it helps them find the motivations and tools and resources for taking part in the healing of their world. Now at the outset, when we're getting underway, uh, we help each other discern certain features of the present situation, which include three stories or versions of reality that are progressively shaping our world so that they can see them more clearly and choose which one they want to get behind. Now these three are business as usual, the great unraveling, and the great turning, as we put it. So uh, business as usual, by that we mean you got to grow the economy. That means global corporate capitalism. Now we also call that the industrial growth society because its key feature is the necessity to keep growing the economy, which of course commodifies our earth. And also we include that for those nations that don't like to word, use the word capitalist though they come to resemble it in their need to compete. So many voices tell us the story of 
the necessity for economic growth. Politicians running for government posts, corporations, and the military, and the corporate-controlled media. Now, the next is the great unraveling. And I love that term because not only does it refer to the unraveling of ecological, biological, social systems as we are commodifying them, but I like the term because systems, all of these don't just fall over dead, but they just gradually, as they're under assault, uh, being mined and extracted and commodified, they lose their coherence, their integrity, their memory, how to keep on going. So that's the second feature of, uh, of the state we're in. And the third story of our era is the transition to a life-sustaining culture. Now, I want you to know, and we emphasize this and demonstrate it, that this transition to a life-sustaining culture is a revolution in the magnitude and scope comparable to the agricultural revolutions in a thousand years ago, or the industrial revolution a few centuries back. There are many ways to refer to it, but we've taken in the work that we connect to calling it the great turning. So seeing this, this trio, I'll put it simply, our work is to help us survive the first two stories and bring more and more people and resources into this third story, this great transition, this turning. Over the last couple of years, a number of us recognized that given the pace of the great unraveling and the destruction being wrought by the industrial growth society, we are heading toward economic and indeed social collapse. Our thinking and courage in thinking about collapse has been helped by the deep adaptation work of Jem Bendel and Deep Adaptation Forum, to say nothing of earlier work and studies by Pablo Salvini of France and Belgium and his company, whose books are only just now coming out in English. And since we're finding courage to look at the possibility of collapse or even the likelihood of it, and since our world economy has proven incapable so far of cutting greenhouse gas emissions at all, it is now obvious that we cannot avoid a climate catastrophe. We had been assuming that the great turning to a life-sustaining society might be able to come first or to forestall such a collapse. But now we've come to see it, that the great turning is 
more like a vision and a commitment within us that can help us survive the collapse of the industrial growth society and keep on going. And the motivation and the skills that we gain in the work that reconnects will serve us here in providing perseverance, inspiration, trust. In that case, in a way, I, I think the great turning becomes something more internal, like a certain almost like bodhicitta, uh, which is the bodhisattva's determination to serve the welfare of all beings, like a, a flame in the heart. So now with the likelihood or indeed possibility, but I'll say likelihood of economic collapse and climate catastrophe looming, we can sense that we are in a space without a map, that we're on shifting ground where old habits and old scenarios, all previous expectations, all familiar, features no longer apply. It's like we're unmoored, cast loose. In Tibetan Buddhism, such a place or gap between known worlds is called a bardo. It's kind of frightening. It's also a place of potential transformation. As you enter the bardo, there facing you is the Buddha Akshobhya. His element is water. He is holding a mirror, for his gift is mirror wisdom, reflecting everything just as it is. And the teaching of Akshobhya's mirror is this. Do not look away. Do not avert your gaze. Do not turn aside. This teaching clearly calls for radical attention and total acceptance. Well, for us right now, it's pretty clear Who's holding up Akshobhya's mirror? COVID-19. It's come on us fast. We knew nothing of it just a short while ago. But right away, it made us stop. It made us stop to take in what the mirror reflects. It made us stop We've been so busy and distracted in our different versions of the rat race that we couldn't pay attention to our actual situation. We have to stop our rushing in order to see who and what we are. This teaching of COVID-19 reminds us again that apocalypse and its ancient meaning connotes revelation and unveiling. Look at what, oh, it's easy to see what it has revealed and unveiled. 
right away, the first days, it revealed our failed healthcare system. At the same time, it revealed our utter interdependence when facing a pandemic so contagious. Right away, without anybody preaching from a pulpit, we could realize that we can't be healthy unless all are healthy. Our need to prioritize our collective well-being rose right up to the surface. Remember that? Especially within our country, which is one of the most hyper-individualized countries in the world. Patterns of contagion showed us pretty soon what we most need to see. The nursing homes where the aging are warehoused. The meatpacking industry, so dangerous to the crowded workers, so cruel to the animals, so costly to the climate. And right away, as soon, right after the heels of that, the prisons, they rose into our view. Prisons where millions are locked away now becoming petri dishes of contamination. And COVID-19 holding up its mirror wisdom laid bare the fault lines of racial inequality in our society and the disproportionate impacts on black, brown and indigenous communities. Remember when we heard 60% of the cases are African-American? thanks to pre-existing conditions due to inequities in healthcare and environmental racism. And on top of that, just four weeks ago, can you believe it? Just four weeks, the killing of George Floyd has not only revealed the racism and brutality of our police culture, but inflamed unparalleled protests sweeping the country and going so far as to call for the defunding and indeed the abolition of police departments and police unions. Here in what I say again is the most hyper individualized country in the world. Many of us are discovering and seeing this others discover a new solidarity in our utter determination to move beyond the sick racism we've inherited and sustained. And in this uprising, we're inspired by the courage, creativity and perseverance of the demonstrators, bringing along with them so many civil servants members of city councils and police departments. A New York City Council member I heard yesterday on speaking on the passage of the council police reforms, dramatic changes within the police department that he acknowledged they had been working on since Eric Gardner's asphyxiation by the police. I can't breathe, he cried, as did George Floyd. It's no time for my giving excuses because it is clear now 
that this is a time of reckoning. Reckoning. <laughs> so it's no wonder that the bardo was seen as a place where the unknown, even the inconceivable, can happen and where you can be changed forever. Now having looked at that, I want to take a moment the rest of my time to look at because in the coming years, we're gonna all be facing great hardship and chaotic conditions. And so we're willing, I sense from this day together and my work that we're ready for that. But here are some things that can help. And let me offer them to you in describing some aspects of the work to be connects. So let me start with what is definitive for many of us. And first, let me just say, I don't have a number of the people's doing the work that reconnects. We're not an organization even. It just spreads. We have a network. We have some books. Uh, we have uh, contagious practices. But we have spread to every country in the northern hemisphere and and down and many in this in the southern hemisphere too in the global south rather and in each one it is affirming interesting enough people's own indigenous native uh, traditions as they find impetus and understanding for moving toward a life-sustaining civilization in spite of the destruction made by the global corporate capitalism, the industrial growth society. Any rate, the spiral of the work is definitive of it, and it's like a circle, but it repeats itself and to keep on going so you can, but each turn of the spiral, which can happen in a workshop or many times in your life, it becomes something that helps sustain you and move you forward. There are four stations in that spiral and their gratitude. And then there's honoring our pain for the world. Then they're seeing with new eyes and going forth. So we have found it in hard times that there's nothing like gratitude for starting with. It grounds you. It's not surprising that every single religion and spiritual path that we know of seems to have started with praise and gratitude. And what it does for us in this Bardo-like time is it grounds us and we feel our feet on the soil. We feel that we're part of a living planet and it's our good fortune to be here with her, the living earth at this moment of such great trial and tribulation and possibility as well 
and huge, humongous change. And in gratitude, you already are peeled away from things that addict you to the consumer culture because you know what keeps you going and you don't need the things that are marketed to make you feel good. You know what you have. You are here. You are with the great mother. You are with each other. Where else would you want to be? So gratitude grounds you so that you can then move into the next station, which is honoring our pain for the world. Not pathologizing it, which is a temptation for us, which makes it very rewarding. The grief and outrage we feel can be so rewarding for the big pharma and their billion dollar earnings. No, it's not to pathologize, but to embrace, to honor and respect. Now we've talked quite a bit, I've heard today about grief. This is more than that. Grief, yes, of course. And fear, the dread. Grief, yes, and the anger, the outrage. Oh, that's good to be able to express. Grief, yes, and the insufficiency and powerlessness. Who, me, what can I do? And in the truth mandala, that is a feature of our work that has spread very widely on its own, uh, sometimes just on its own. <laughs> we have symbols for these four within the mandala. And we also bring forward as we invite people to come in and express and contend with them, their tantric sides. For grief, the tantric or source side is love. We only grieve what we love. To meet your fear, you need such courage. It's tantric side is bravery and courage, etc. Oh, for outrage and anger, you might be wondering what's the source or tantric side of that? It's passion for justice. So each of these, an insufficiency or powerlessness, that one, oh me, I'm not up to it, I'm just a little, is that sense of lack is turned into the newness, is tantric side, the emptiness from which the new can arise. So I have benefited so greatly from this work. So I'm grateful to call it to your attention as we go forward into times that are waiting for us, that are chaotic and trying. And after that, what we come into, because we find then that as we encounter the 
grief and rage and fear, that this is actually causing us to reach out more and to actually experience our larger identity in every one of those, if you are paying attention, every one of them widens our sense in widening circles. And we, in the work, use these widening circles to extend our relevance and our unique importance right now at this point through space and time. And so we do a lot of role playing in this part of the spiral. We experience and play with our solidarity with more than human beings. Maybe some of you have already taken part in a council of all beings where you move beyond your soul identification with your human identity as if stepping out of shoes that are too tight and allow more than human beings to speak through you or in your identity in the presence of the past and future generations because this moment with our living earth is culminating time for the past the ancestors every ancestor is here with us now in what we're facing don't doubt it use it open to it and the future generations as well one of my teachers nuclear scientist gray nun rosalie bertel said every being who will ever live is here now where ah in our ovaries, in our gonads, in our DNA. They are here with us now. What a beautiful, beautiful calling we have to be able to play with them, giving them a chance to life. I think my time is up, so I close with gratitude and being able to share this moment with you. My dear fellow journeyers, we're so lucky in a way to be alive right now. Would you want to miss it? We're so lucky in a way to have each other mm. and teachings of the ancestors and the company of the future. That was Joanna Macy, eco-philosopher and scholar of Buddhism. She spoke from her home in Berkeley, California, at the Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, at their Awakened Action Symposium. Joanna Macy had been asked to recommend resources from her writings. Here they are. Her 2011 book, which happens to be my personal favorite, it's entitled Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy, and written three years later with Molly Brown, Coming Back to Life, the updated guide to the work that reconnects. And lastly, a very recent book from April 2020, 
A Wild Love for the World, Joanna Macy and the Work of Our Time. It's an anthology edited by Stephanie Casa. A video of this talk by Joanna Macy, A Wiser, Braver World, is archived by the Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Visit Joanna Macy's website at joannamacy.net. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>